For context, this interview was recorded in February 2020, before the COVID-19 pandemic. We all want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? Robbie Kelman-Baxter has been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. And in this podcast, she uncovers the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for subscription stories, true tales from the trenches. I'm Robbie Kelman-Baxter, and I'm so glad you could join me. Today, I'll be speaking with Joanna Strober. Joanna is a senior vice president at WW, formerly known as Weight Watchers. WW is the largest and probably most well-known lifestyle brand in the world. And Joanna is responsible for WW's kid and teen memberships. Let's get people to reach a healthy weight. The more successful we are with that, the sooner you stop using our program. And that's not good for a business, but it's really good for the product. Joanna founded Curbo, a weight loss program for adolescents, which was acquired by WW in 2018. Weight has been a tricky subject to talk about, now more than ever. Joanna says that having a support system that encourages people, and especially youth, is crucial. We'll learn how she was able to incorporate her passion into a mission-driven company at Curbo and why it's such a good fit for WW. Joanna, welcome to the show. Thank you, Robbie. I'm very excited to be here. I can't imagine anything more fun today. <laughs> Me too. So I wanted to start by just giving you a chance to talk a little bit about what Curbo is and why you founded it. So Curbo was started six years ago, really at the very beginning of the digital health revolution. I don't know, I'm not even sure that at the time digital health was a was a topic that people were were actively discussing. But I have three kids. My middle guy had kind of developed a weight problem. And at the last time we went to the pediatrician, the pediatrician said, well, you know, you really need to start worrying about this. And, and <laughs> Thank you very home. much. <laughs> exactly. And send us home. Um, we really know tools. And I started making a lot of phone calls and try to figure out what, what I was supposed to do in order to help him. And the one thing that I learned is that there are in-person programs. It's actually, I have a crazy statistic for you. There are 37 programs in the country right now that are seen as high quality, and 15 million overweight and obese kids. Wow. I can't even do the math on that, but that's like a million <laughs> a million uh, patients for every program. Right. Yeah. So we happen to live near one of them, which is the Stanford Pediatric Weight Control Program. And they have a really good program. But the issue was it was in person. And my son didn't want to go. And it required me to also leave work to go. And I just started thinking, like, why, why do you have to do a program like this in person when the thing that my child liked the most in his life was his cell phone? And it wasn't clear to me why it couldn't be offered remotely. And so that's what we decided to do, was we licensed the Stanford program, and we spent about a year working with game designers and UX designers and content providers and educators and turning it into a remote program that people could do wherever they were. And it wasn't all automated though. No, there's a coach. So there's an app and the app has all the education that you would learn in program, but in much shorter snippets, you know, people's attention span are usually about three to five minutes max. Um, and so everything is given to you in very short, 
short snippets of information and also in a fun, engaging way. And then we connect you to a coach. So you connect to a coach once a week and you talk to that coach and they see the information that you're doing all week. So they see the foods that you're eating. They see if you're exercising. And then they give you personalized information on how to eat healthier and live healthier based on the information that they gather from the app. So that's really interesting that you had the digital part, but you also had this very human component. How did you find cool coaches that the kids actually wanted to relate to? (laughs) You know, it's interesting. That's actually one of our secret sauces is that kids really like motivators is my best word for it. That they're not looking for a teacher. They're looking for someone who they aspire to be like and someone who is interesting to them. So we actually recruited a lot of athletes, for example. So we have a lot of athletes on our program. We have yoga instructors on our program. We have all sorts of people who like working with kids. You have to have experience working with kids. But people who um, would be motivational to the kids and that they would relate to in in a way that they might not relate to a doctor if they had to go to a a once-a-week doctor's visit. So once the kids are in the program, it sounds like they like it. They like the coaches. They're engaged. Um, I would think, though, that one of the hardest things is how you – get them into the program in the first place. Because, you know, I was, you know, full confession, I was sort of a chubby kid. Like I would not have wanted to be part of any kind of a weight loss program. And I also, even though my mom is a pretty assertive, direct and forthright person, I don't know how she would have broached the subject of me maybe benefiting from um, a weight loss app. Yeah, it's a hard topic, isn't it? Weight, I mean, it's amazing what a difficult topic weight is in our society. We have attached so many different emotional meanings to it. Um, One thing we do is we talk to doctors and doctors often are scared to tell a child that their BMI is high or that they're considered in an unhealthy weight because they know the child's going to be insulted. And instead of feeling like it's a health issue, they're, they're scared to bring it up. And parents feel the same way. Parents look at their kids and they, they want to be helpful and they want to to help them to to live a healthier life. And and yet at the same time, the, the parents think, well, if I tell my child that we're going to work on this together, that that it's going to be a an insult, right? And so other societies don't have that. In Asian societies, it's much more straightforward. But in the United States, just the weight issue has so many laden things. So what we found is that we really wait for triggers. A trigger could be a doctor's visit where the doctor says, you know, your child or yeah. says to a child, you have an unhealthy weight. Sometimes the trigger is the child gets teased at school and comes home and tells their parent that they were being made fun of, or maybe there was the dreaded middle school mile and <laughs> they couldn't run it fast yeah, as fast I as the other that. kids <laughs> in the class, right? Doesn't everyone remember that not running that mile awful. as fast as the other kids in the class? And they come home, mom, I want to run the mile faster. And then that's something else that we can help with. So, so you talked about triggers. And I think a lot about in, in most subscription business models, you have to have the trigger that um, allows you to acquire a new subscriber, um, a new member to your program. And then there's also the hooks, which are the things that make it a habit, that engage the person hopefully for forever. Can you talk to me a little bit about some of the hooks that um, you used in onboarding new members, um, both the parents and the kids, and how you make Kerbo a forever habit. (laughs) So it's interesting the way you talk about forever habit. So to answer your first question, the coach is the key for us. If a child establishes a relationship with a coach, then they look forward every week to having that coaching call. And They look forward to it. They do. They love it. 
the kid, we get emails all the time from parents thanking us and saying they, their child doesn't want to stop doing Kerbo. They don't even need it anymore, but they love their coach and they formed a relationship with the coach. A lot of parents have a problem that they don't know how to talk to Wade about with their kids, as I mentioned. And so it's a safe place. It's a safe place to talk about the challenges that you have with our coaches and they're trained in those techniques to make it a safe place. So they, the kids, the kids respond very, very well to the coach. And that's really the key is that bonding that happens immediately. But with regard to your forever transaction, that's a more interesting question. We start with the coaching and the coaching really works for behavior change. We also have the app, which teaches you skills and helps you to learn skills and to keep track of your skills and keep track of what you're eating. And so the, the challenge that we face as a business is that after three to six to nine months of coaching, people feel like they have the skills. And then they don't really feel like they need a coach, at least not very often. Is it the parent that feels like they don't need a coach or is it the kid that's done? Well, it's kind of both, right? Sometimes the parent's just done paying. They're like, my child doesn't need you anymore. My child doesn't want to stop, but they don't need you anymore, so I'm not going to keep paying. Or the child says, you know what? I think I'm ready to do this on my own. And we want to celebrate that right? We're not going to say, oh, no, you can't do it on your own. We want to celebrate the fact that they can that they can do it on their own. So as a business, the thing that we could do is we could have coaching for sleep, or we could have coaching for stress, or we could have other types of coaching on our platform. Or, or even check-ins. Or check-ins, yes. So we're looking at all those things. Like, what can we do to keep you with us for a longer, for a longer period of time? Um, but I joke that part of the problem is my goal... And our goal was initially, let's get people to reach a healthy weight. The more successful we are with that, the sooner you stop using our program. And that's not good for a business, but it's really good for the product. And so there's some tension there that we need to fix. So I want to switch gears for a minute. You know, I have a seven-step process for subscription and membership businesses, kind of seven key areas of competence that an organization should have. And I want to just walk through them and hear are your thoughts on each one, what has worked well for you and what, what challenges you've seen. The, the first one is organizational structure. So the kinds of skills that you needed and the kinds of metrics you needed and the kinds of culture you needed to create. Because um, this was your first time working in a company, right? You were an investor prior to launching Kerbo. Um, so how did you think about establishing the right kind of organizational structure, metrics, uh, and, uh, and culture? So the one thing that is the most fun about this company and this product is that it attracts people who are very mission-driven. And, and really for us, that comes first. If people are not super excited by the mission of helping fight childhood obesity and make an impact like that, then it's not the right company for them. The good news is there's a lot of people who care about that, and we were able to attract great people to come. And it's just so much more fun to work at a company where you care about what they're doing and care about deeply about the mission. And so that's kind of what comes first with everyone that we talk to is, you know, why do you want to come work here? And what excites you about working on this? And from that comes a lot of other benefits. Uh, right. It's very different than like a typical Silicon Valley company where the first the first passion is about the product as opposed to the first passion being about the mission. That's right. So we have a lot of people who work for us because they're just really excited about the mission and 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 working on this problem that really impacts so many kids. And so for, from organizational structure, everyone from the engineers to the marketing people, everyone came to us in large part because they were attracted to the mission. 
And what metrics do you use? What are the most important metrics that you use as the CEO and founder and now kind of in this bigger organization? What are the metrics that are most important to you? Yeah, so fundamentally, it's cost of acquisition of a, of a member. It's how long a member stays with our program. It's how often they engage with the program. How many times a week do they log in? How often are they using the app? How many times do they use the coaching? So really, engagement is key for us. Um, we have found that you know, the more engaged someone is, the, obviously, the more likely they are to be successful. So it's super important to us to get, to get that to happen. Um, and then, you know, how, how long someone stays with it is also is, is key, right? We need you to stay engaged for a while. This is not a short fix. And that's important What's to a understand. While? Well, so most of the programs, if you go to an in-person program, they try to get you to start for six months. And we actually found that was too long. It was threatening to, for people to, to think about signing up for six kind months. Kind of overwhelming. Yeah. Right. Really? I have to do this for six months. But the interesting thing is that most people for us sign up for three months and then stick for six months. So once they sign up and they like it, they don't mind continuing for six months. It was just threatening to them to sign up at once for six months. So onboarding is really important then because you want them to make that decision. I mean, in almost every subscription business, um, and I don't think that this is this is different with you, you lose the most people in the first days after they join, where, right. they, where it's kind of a failure to launch situation. Um, or in organizations that have a free trial, they never get past the free trial. What are the techniques that you've used to effectively onboard a new family? So, so I sign up. You see, you know, Robbie signs up for her for her kid. What happens? How do you make sure that I that I stay and that my kid stays and that we thrive? Yeah, so we're actually up to about ninety percent on that, and it's really through that ninety percent retention. Yeah, from the first from day, the first sign up. Yes, which, by the way, people is really good <laughs> and very unusual. <laughs> but the way we do that is through an interpersonal connection. I mean, we have an immediate phone call that goes out. It's not just an email. We get a phone call and we say, "We're welcome to the program. We're really excited to have you. We're matching you with a coach." And we want to make sure here are the things you want to work on. Here's the type of coach that you want to have, and. The faster we can make that phone call happen and then get the coach to connect, the more likely we are to be to be successful. Got it. And how do you think of your funnel in terms of bringing people in? You know, sometimes organizations have a really wide funnel. Lots of people come in and lots of them churn out. Sounds like you have, you know, fewer people churn out of the ones that come in. Um, and I think part of that is due to where you're, you know, you, you talked about cost, cost of acquisition and where you're sourcing your new members from. Um, how do you think about the funnel um, and what happens before that initial moment of transaction and then what happens after? So um, we don't do mass marketing. <laughs> um, we don't try to get the funnel as, as wide as possible. We found that that was not cost effective for now, us. Now, Weight Watchers, WW is on TV all the time, but that is not the approach of Kerbo. That's right. That's not our approach. So we are we are much more targeted. We work a lot with pediatricians and mm -hmm. we do a lot of marketing through pediatricians, which we found to be very impactful. We sometimes work with schools. We have worked with sports teams, but we don't we don't go to the world <laughs> to do marketing. We just were unable to make that a cost-effective acquisition strategy. So instead it's much more targeted. It means we have a higher conversion rate on our website and it also means that um, you know we're able to 
keep the cost the cost lower. Right, because which makes a lot of sense, um, because if you want to keep a subscriber for six months, you need to be attracting the right people. And anybody who comes in the front door and leaves the back door before the first month is over, you're going to probably lose money on them. So, to me, that makes a lot of sense that you're that you're staying really really focused. And then, is there anything on the back end? What do you do when somebody's finished six months? You know, I talk about a forever promise. You have a forever promise, which is a lifetime of health, but your program, the active part, is about six months. What do you do to counsel people out? So we have two things. First of all, someone can use our app forever, and we have many people who will stop doing the coaching, and then they continue using the app to track their foods and to to keep them on track. Uh, so that's and like so that is our forever practice, our ever our forever promise is. Once you do our program, you are always a Kerbo participant. You can always have access to all the data, and you can always have access to the to the training and the skills that, that we offer. And so, um, we have people who have been with us for many years who you know go on and off of using the app. They just don't have a coach, and and that so that is truly our forever promise. I guess is that that you can have access to that. So they are staying with you through the app. That's and right. Do you track that as well? How much, once somebody stops working with a coach, do you track how often? Yeah. And how often they track foods and how often they track their exercise. And we, we track all of that. Yeah. And we have people who have been with us for many years. So it's it's interesting. I'm just thinking about this now. I don't think I'd ever really realized this. It's almost like a reverse freemium model. <laughs> right. Exactly. You get the free at the end. <laughs> you, can't, you can't come in free at the beginning, but free, you know, one of the things that's interesting, a lot of... And you and I have talked about this a lot. One of the challenges I face a lot when I'm working with organizations that want to build membership models is that they want to copy a model that they're familiar with. They say, we want to use freemium because that's what LinkedIn does. Um, or we want to do a free trial because that's what Netflix does. But you really have to look at your own model as something unique and what your objectives are. And... I mean, I know you've kind of moved from thinking about putting freemium at the beginning to really putting it at the end, which is a, a really interesting idea. Once somebody has the education to be able to kind of self-manage. Right. Exactly. So I love that. I think that's really that's really interesting. Can you talk to me, since we're talking about pricing, free and paid, how do you think about pricing? And maybe can you walk us through a couple of the different stages of how you consider different pricing models and how you landed on the one where you are now? Yes, I wish it was particularly scientific. We we have an interesting pricing model that our goal is to be accessible to a lot of people. Um, but we have, you know, we've mostly just done it through trial and error and, and tested what, what makes sense. We have found that there's not a lot of change in our revenue, depending on what our um, pricing is, in a, in a pretty wide range. So, so you have an inelastic product. Yes. If people within, need it, it's binary. Either yes. I'm going to sign up and do it as long as it's in a reasonable range, or I'm not interested even if it's one cent. That's right. Within a pretty wide range. Yeah. Maybe not one cent. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that makes sense, right? Because if you need to lose weight and you're motivated to lose weight, you're probably less concerned. Like, what is it worth to be at a healthy weight? Right, it's it's in that it's priceless. Right, um, so that's that's really interesting. So you found that there's a range, and you've focused on a on a price that you feel is fair and accessible. That's exactly right. Going back to your mission. Yes, exactly. It's all from, it's all around that. Exactly. 
So we've gone through five things. We've talked about the org structure. We've talked about the funnel. We've talked about onboarding. We've talked about the role of free. We've talked about pricing. Now I want to talk about customer success. So customer success is this very popular term, particularly among software as a service, you know, business to business software companies that have realized that if they're going to charge a subscription to their customers, instead of letting them just buy the software outright or get a site license, that there's a very real risk that people are going to leave. So they're investing more and more in what they call customer success professionals who make sure that a person that is using their products and services is getting the value they're paying for. Um, so if you drive your car off the showroom floor, that's your problem. If you don't ever drive that car, you still paid the full amount of the car. But if you're subscribing, um, you can cancel at any time. So having some kind of a customer success program that ensures that people are getting the value they, they came for is really important. And I'm wondering if that's something that you think about. So not just in that, that onboarding phase, but later, maybe let's say month two or month four, how do you ensure that the person, both the child and I would guess the parent, the, the whole member family, how are they getting the value that they're paying for? So first of all, we actually have two business models. So we sell both to consumers and we sell to businesses. And that's both insurance companies and employers. So we have customer success managers just exactly doing what you're talking about, which is working, that, with, the, working with the corporate with accounts. Corporate accounts. So those people are giving reports to their corporate accounts each month. Here's how many people, here's how many kids signed up. Here's how many coaching sessions they did. How here's how long they stayed with the program. So we have that exact role for the for the B2B clients. And that's really important. With regard to the consumers, the customer success really goes back to the coaches, right? It really goes back to is the person forming a relationship with the coach? And we actually monitor our coaches very closely. So we monitor all their interactions and we everything takes place on our platform, a lot for safety, but also just to make sure they're doing a good job. And then we can follow up with the coaches if we have any concerns. Um, they really rarely happen, but we're, we're really, we do work very closely with our coaches and, and monitor them to make sure that they're, um, that they're being effective with the families they work with. Yeah. It's, it's gotta be harder running a subscription business with kids involved. Yes. We have a lot of safety built in. I mean, a lot, a lot, a lot of safety built in. So that's, First and foremost, I mean, I'm a mom. <laughs> Most of the people who came to our company at the very beginning were parents. We cared deeply about the safety of our program. And so everything was built on that premise that that our all of our coaches are mandated reporters. They are they're trained in how to deal with eating disorders. They're trained extensively on how to deal with family dynamics. They're trained um on, on a whole spectrum of things to make sure the safety is is the most important thing that we work with. Wow. That's great. Okay, so the last the last thing on my wheel is technology. And you know, you've been you were an early investor in a lot of uh, consumer internet businesses, uh, eToys, Baby Center, uh, Blue Nile. Um, tell me what it's like to run a technology business that's not really a technology business. <laughs> so it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because in the end, our success. Was only partially dependent on the technology. The technology, our app has to be good. It has to be fun. It has to be engaging. Um, and I wish I could tell you that, you know, AI had evolved to the point where we could be doing everything solely with technology. Um, we just can't. So 
the technology is a tool toward our success, but it's only one of the tools in our in our wheelhouse. And people are always asking, well, how do we get rid of the coaches? I, I don't think we're close to getting rid of the coaches. I don't think that AI is good enough that we're going to be yeah. getting rid of the coaching anytime soon. And, and what I keep finding is when you remove people from one part of the business model, they pop up somewhere else, <laughs> right? Because we want that connection. Yes. We want that human connection. And, and you said earlier so beautifully that, you know, for a lot of the kids, these coaches, it's not about the education, it's about the motivation and the connection. Yes. And my personal belief is that that's part of your, that's your secret sauce. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think that the secret sauce of WW when it first got started, as I understand it, is people coming together in groups. Mm -hmm. And that group thing was really effective. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so um, last year, your company was acquired by Weight Watchers, by WW. Can you talk me through what you thought would happen uh, when you were part of WW and and then maybe what it's really like? Because I think a lot of people listening um, are either considering acquiring a membership business to um, help them create a culture of membership in their organization or are, like you, entrepreneurs in subscription or membership businesses that are thinking about an acquisition as one potential, let's not even call it an exit, but as a, a step to greater greater platform. Yeah, so um, we had been in business for about five years and we're growing, but kind of getting back to the mission, um, our, we really wanted to be growing much faster and we wanted to have a much bigger impact at a bigger scale than we had on our own. And there was almost no one that I would be interested in in partnering with to do that, but um, I looked at WW and the opportunity to work with them was so exciting because they had the science, they had real science backing up their program and real experience. And then they had a lot of passionate users and people who really had a lot of success on their program. So I used to answer the telephone at Carbo and I would say every day someone would call up and say, I'm a WW member and I want something like this for my kids. And so it just became really clear to me that the perfect place for us to be would be with a group of passionate people who felt part of a community and who wanted to help their children. Yeah. And so that was really why I wanted to work with them. The opportunity to work with them was so great because there was so much overlap in mission and and in and, and values. And what's it been like being there? You know, it's been really good. I've been really <laughs> lucky. My team is really loving it. They get more resources. They get access to really smart people who know how to build subscription businesses, but also who know how to look at the science. And we have access to an incredible team of scientific advisors who are advising us in, on evolving. We feel really fortunate. My whole team is there and, and really feels very, very, very fortunate. Um, and we're learning. So it's great because we, we went in thinking, you know, we had things to teach them and, and they had a lot to teach us. So it's been a very symbiotic relationship. So Joanna, this summer, there was a social media storm around Kerbo and Weight Watchers. Can you walk me through what happened and why it happened and how your members reacted? Yeah, it was it was really quite an experience, as you know, because I was calling you quite, yeah. <laughs> quite a bit. Robbie, what am I supposed to do? Um, it you was know, baffling. It was super interesting and baffling to me. So you know, we've been in best business for five years and we've gotten no criticisms. We had five-star reviews across the board, on the app, on every review that had come out about us. We had um, articles written about us that were universally positive. Lots and lots of press that was universally positive. 
And then this art, then the announcement comes out that we're working as part of WW. And initially for about five hours, it was quiet. And then all of a sudden, Twitter took off. And um, we were in, we were trending on Twitter. We were on every news station in the country. We were internationally famous for about five minutes. And it was universally bad. And it was universally, somehow, the idea of helping kids lose weight was then turned into giving kids eating disorders, criticizing them for not being of a healthy weight, telling you you should never have, you should never help kids lose weight. They're just going to do it through intuitive eating, which is what the New York Times said, and never help them because intuitive they'll just eating. intuitively so, eat so out of this. My mother-in-law did intuitive eating when she was pregnant with my brother-in-law, and she gained 75 pounds because her intuition told her to only eat donuts. Right. Well, <laughs> so the New York Times came out with an article written by someone who was pitching their book saying, just let kids do intuitive eating and it will all work out. We know where intuitive eating is. We know what eating intuitive eating is with our kids. <laughs> we know that any parent knows where intuitive eating leads. You don't choose to eat broccoli instead of cookies. Your body tells you the cookies taste really good. And so we initially started trying to respond, right? And we started trying to answer. And then we realized that this was such a storm that it was useless to answer. And we just had to let it pass. And every author who has written a book about weight or has written a book about health at any size, or who has written a book about eating disorders, decided to use this as their news peg yeah. to get attention to their own their own thing they wanted to write about. It was crazy. And, and I had to just kind of sit there and watch quietly. Now you asked, now the one thing that was the most rewarding to me was how many of our members emailed and said, how can we help this? We know this is not true. We know that everything we're reading in the press does not resonate with what we know we're experiencing on your program. How can we help? And we just said, be quiet because we didn't want them to get attacked. And I number, my number one priority was to protect the kids and to protect the people who were doing our program. I didn't want them to have any negative feedback. So we just went and took down all their pictures and we just tried to make it so that none you of them- You took down their pictures off the website. Mm-hmm. So just to be clear, you have um, success stories on your website and you have quotes and stories. Yeah, so we took down a lot of them and we changed them and we we edited it all as fast as we could totally to protect our members. That was our number one goal because some of them were getting mean comments and we didn't want that to happen. Yeah. So, but, but they were all emailing saying, how do we help you? And then actually it was so rewarding in the New York Times in the comments, all these people were writing in, I did it, this article is just wrong. Um, <laughs> but you know, that's not an interesting story. The interesting story, the thing that takes off on Twitter is, you know, the opposite. And so we realized we just had to live through it and um, wait. And it did go pretty fast. It didn't feel fast at the time, but um, it did go pretty fast. One of my good friends who's a really smart person said, look, listen to the criticisms, take what you can from them, and then you can move on. And we got some, actually, when we were able to look at what the criticisms were, um, when the whole world is looking at your product, some people come up with some really good ideas. And so we were able to get, actually get good feedback from people. And we took that and put it into the product. We put additional safety measures in. We put more restrictions on who was able to use it. And and I feel like we actually made the product better after. 
I mean, the good news is revenue is up. So yeah, there's no, I mean, they. I don't know that I believe that there's no such thing as bad publicity. I think there is such a thing yes. as bad publicity. But in your case, the the people who were angry would never have been your members That's right. anyway. The body positivity movement that is sort of the anti-fat shaming kind of community, not going to be you know, members of, of Kerbo. And on the other end, uh, disordered eating is not something. And, and in fact, the way Kerbo is designed, I mean, I remember from the very beginning, that was something that you were very aware of is how do we design something that even if somebody who did not have weight to lose joined, it would be safe for them. Yes. Because- we put huge amounts. We had this huge advisory board. We worked with a lot of eating disorder specialists and making the app in order to make it safe and effective. And safe was number one. And that was our number one priority the entire time. But you can't get that. That's not a sexy story, right? And so that doesn't come out when people are criticizing. But I wonder, I mean, you said your business is is doing well. I wonder if hearing about this, one of your biggest challenges has been awareness. Right. Right. Like a lot of people don't know, when they come to you, they say, we didn't know this great thing existed. And now that we know this is just what we need. I didn't know there was a thing just like WW that was for kids. Um, And so when they hear about it, so do you think that net net, would you go through it again to build for this awareness? Like, did it work out? Or would you say, you know what, you can, you know, (laughs) I would rather be growing at a slower pace, the organic way, um, than to have had to take my team and my members through this maelstrom? It's a good question. I don't know if I entirely know the answer. I would... Some of the some of the maelstrom was helpful. Others parts was not helpful. We did learn a lot, and we made our product better. And yeah. and and so on some level, the the feedback did help us to make the product better. Um, I think we made some mistakes in how we talked about it in, in the and you know whether we were as ready as we should have been for the media criticism. I don't know the answer to that. I'm sure we could have been more prepared and put more on our website about the safety features that we had in there that people didn't know about. But a lot of it, a lot of the outrage had nothing to do with us. It had to do with people wanting attention to themselves. I mean, one of the largest eating disorder groups actually made me really sad. I had all these emails from the person running it saying how much she loved our app and how much she loved our product and she wanted to have something similar for her group. And then, you know, given the opportunity to tweet against us, did so because it got attention to her organization. And so things like that are painful to go through and not something I would have wanted to repeat. So I think about uh, membership businesses having sort of three stages of maturity. The first one is when you're just trying to figure out what's the ideal model, how do we meet people's needs, you know, product market fit, um, getting air cover to give yourself time to start to grow, having enough, you know, these were the early day conversations. How do you get enough uh, funding to invest? Where do you experiment? All of that. That's phase one. That was kind of, I think of that as kind of the first, let's say, four or five years of Kerbo. Then there's the phase of rapid growth. We've got our model. Um, it's working. We just need to get it out to the right people so that they know about us because we know once they come in the front door, they're going to get results. We're going to deliver on the promise and we're going to get paid fairly for it. And that's, you know, so I think of the first phase is launch, the second phase is a scale phase, and then this last phase is a lead phase, which is when you become the leading player in your space. And the challenges are different there, one of which is you have a big target on your back. Um, So you're somebody who's really gone through all three phases through that acquisition in pretty rapid 
time. You know, most companies, it takes 30, 40, 50 years before they have the leadership issues. Um, which phase do you think is the, is the most challenging? You know, I have loved building this business. So I think it's all been challenging, but I have felt so lucky almost all the time to have been able to do this. Um, I think the most challenging changes a lot, right? When we first started, we didn't know if it would work. Right. So that, right. I mean, that was if the you very, recall, you did when, a test <laughs> just to see, do people actually lose weight? Right. Work kids going to do weight. the yeah. app. Work kids going to engage with it. That was really challenging. It was fun, but it was really yeah. challenging. Yeah. We had no idea what those initial outcomes were going to be. You had a lot of hypotheses be. you were testing. Right. Would the, would the parents want it? Would the kids want it? That's would right. Would be willing to pay? Would the coaches be good enough? I mean, you had, could you? Could you translate the Stanford program into a digital footprint? That's right. You know, as I mentioned earlier, right, when digital health just started, which is when we were starting this company, a lot of people didn't think this would ever work altogether, that the only way you could deliver a program like this would be in person. At four o'clock on Tuesdays. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. With the whole family in attendance. Right. And a big binder. <laughs> <laughs> so pages for your child to read. But I do think that part is probably the most fun, right? When you are coming up with the ideas and thinking about it and trying to think about how to make it all work is that was the most fun um, and the most taxing, but but that adventure of trying to figure this out was was really rewarding. Okay. I, I want to ask you for some advice. So some people that are listening are entrepreneurs or want to be entrepreneurs thinking about a new business. Some of them um, are working in big companies trying to start a subscription business or uh, scale it. What's your advice for somebody who is running a membership economy business? What would be the most important thing that you would tell them if they hadn't done it before? You know, a lot of businesses are in some ways like Kerbo, right? They they stop. The need for them stops. And that makes it much harder to run a business. You have to charge a lot more. It's a lot harder than if something if someone needs it forever. Um, one actually promise the WW makes that I love is that it continues to, it's wellness, right? You think about, well, that never goes away in, while kind of the idea of weight loss does. Um so I think if I was starting over, I would think about different ways of doing wellness or having something that would go, people would pay for, for, for a longer period of time. Yeah. Um, yeah. You spent so much energy building the relationship with them. It's a shame to see them go. Yes, that's exactly right. There's probably more you can do to help contribute to their wellness. You know, we, di we didn't really talk much about this, but you had like quite the successful career as an investor and you were an early investor in consumer internet plays, including subscription and membership models. What's your advice as an investor to people who are trying to get funding in a <laughs> subscription or membership business? You know, uh, I advise a lot of people on this. And I think it's a combination of you have to have a lot of courage and a lot of belief in your idea, and you really have to sell it strong. I think a lot of people are not as good at the selling part. They have a lot of belief in what they are doing, but they don't necessarily have that excitement come across when they're pitching their idea to other people. And I think you have to think really big and you have to think really yeah. boldly and you have to keep on pitching over and over again and not get discouraged when people keep on saying no. And that's a hard combination. Some people just don't get it at all, right? <laughs> right. I mean, and you can't <laughs> try to convince them. They have Their eyes have to light up. Right. Yes, that's exactly right. They have, and, and then other people are not going to be interested and that's okay. And you move on. But if you have the level of excitement and you're able to pass that level of excitement on to other people, I think that's key, especially at the beginning. What's your advice as a, an acquired company head? 
Um, so you, you're an entrepreneur. You ran this business. You got acquired. This is happening more and more. We're seeing, you know, um, Dollar Shave Club was acquired for a billion dollars by Unilever. Uh, Harry Shave Club was just acquired by the people who make Schick. Um, what does that feel like? And, and what is your advice for somebody who's going through that process? You know, I think you have to be humble. In the end, you're going into a big organization. And from everyone that I've talked to and the advice that I got, it's more likely that you're going to bend to the large organization than they are to bend to you. And if you want to make it successful, you're going to have to do a little bending and be <laughs> humble and know what you don't know about that large company. And I think if you do that, they will enjoy working with you much more and you're much more likely to be successful. Great. Okay. Last thing I wanted to do is I want to do a little speed round. I had a couple of quick questions for you and I just want you to, you know, off the top of your head, tell me what comes to mind. Um, ready? Mm-hmm. First subscription you ever had? Highlights Magazine. <laughs> Favorite subscription today? That's either the New Yorker or the Atlantic. I couldn't tell you which one. What your employees love about working for you? The mission. What your employees hate working about you? It's hard to walk away from it. We care a lot, and that makes it stressful. If you were a superhero, what would be your superpower? Empathy. And what is the one thing that you want people to take away from this interview? There's nothing more fun than building a mission-driven company. You know, you go through a lot of ups and downs in a company, and if you believe deeply in what you're doing and that you're able to help people at the same time as building a company, that is just one of the greatest opportunities in the world. Thank you so much, Joanna Strober, for being my inaugural guest on Subscription Stories. Thank you. Invite me back, please. I will. <laughs> I'm Robbie Kelman-Baxter, and this has been Subscription Stories. Today, I was talking with Joanna Strober, founder of Kerbo. To hear more success stories of entrepreneurs creating their forever transaction in this new and exciting membership economy, subscribe to my podcast wherever you download your podcasts. Also, please give me a rating or review to help me better understand exactly what you want to hear. Special thanks to Joanna for being a great first guest. To learn more about Joanna, visit her website at kerbo.com. Arnav Gupta was the audio engineer and editor for this podcast. I'm Robbie Kelman-Baxter. Thanks for listening and for your support.